<laughs> As was said, today is the 15th anniversary of 9-11. No day shall erase you from the memory of time. This is the inscription that's on uh, the memorial in New York City. Many people have said that uh, 9-11 is the most significant historical event in the last hundred years, and I've even read several people that have said it's probably the most significant event in the last 1,000 years. So it's right that we try to figure out what was 9-11 all about. When we talk about history, we've, it's often been said history is his story, God's story. So I think it behooves us to figure out, well, what was God doing through 9-11. This message is unusual for for me and our family. When 9-11 happened, uh, we were in China, and uh, we had very bad internet connection, so we weren't bombarded with 9-11 like most of you were. In fact, it wasn't until a couple years later when we came back to the States, I remember watching a one-hour special about 9-11. It was I kind of was like, oh, I, I get it now. Uh, and I kind of felt more, I think, what most people in America felt. Um, but this message uh, came about for me about nine years after 9-11. I was reading through 1 Corinthians, and I read this verse. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And for the first time in my life, I'd read this a number of times before, but on that day, this is the first time I ever saw it. And I was really moved, and I began to just confess to God, God, forgive me, because I have never eagerly desired spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. And Lord, I, I, have, n- I have no idea what prophecy is and how it's supposed to work in the church. But that day as I confessed that to the Lord, I also prayed and said, God, I want to be obedient. I want to conform my life to your word. I want to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. I want to understand prophecy. If it's so important, then Lord, would you give it to me so that I can bless others with it? Would you help me to be eager in pursuing it? Also in 1 Corinthians 14, later on it said, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, prophesy, and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And I prayed, Lord, I don't understand how prophecy is done in a, a fitting and orderly way, but would, would you teach me that? And again, I came across, be eager to prophesy. I said, Lord, I, I'm, I'm not eager at all to prophesy. I'm petrified of that word. I don't know what it means. I don't understand it. But Lord, would you help me conform my life to your word? And lastly, in 1 Corinthians 14.3, it says, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. And I realized these gifts, God's given them to build up the church. I said, Lord, 
for the sake of the church, would you help me to eagerly desire these? Well, that was about 2009, and some very interesting things happened uh, that about a year, nine months, 12 months later, I had just finished, I finished writing an article that was 16 pages long about 9-11 and American militarism, and I was just kind of shaking my head. I was like, why did I, how did I get writing this? Where did this all come from? Uh, why did I suddenly get interested in that? I, I served, uh, or I went to the United States Air Force Academy, spent four years training to be an Air Force officer, and then spent five years in the Air Force. But when I got out, I, I wasn't particularly pro-military or against the military. I was, I had enjoyed my time in the military, but now God was calling me overseas, and I was very excited about that. So it seemed very strange to me. How am I? Why am I writing about the military and 9-11? I wasn't even there when 9-11 happened. But then it struck me, and I realized, you know, I think God has been answering those prayers that I prayed. And per perhaps that's what this is all about. And so I want to share with you that journey that I took and that some of the convictions that I came to. And so I would say this message is more a prophetic word from God than it is a sermon. And it, it feels really weird to say that, almost kind of scary. Um, I still have a lot of questions about these. And, um, and I know there's a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of people um, are, are confused. And these things can bring division in the church. Um, but today I'm going to bring before you what God has done in my heart. And in the scriptures it says two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Commentators say, well, these others that weigh carefully, is that the other prophets that were in the Corinthian church? Well, going on down to 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22, it says, don't quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. So Thessalonians was written to the, to the church. So it was telling the whole church to, to test these. So I hope you'll listen especially attentive today and be in tune with the Holy Spirit inside you to say and ask the Holy Spirit to testify, is this of God's word or these Wade's words or Wade's ideas? Um, but ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you as I talk today. And it's interesting here, it says, don't quench the spirit. Well, how do we quench the spirit? Apparently, one of the ways it was happening was by people treating prophecies with contempt. So if for some reason you've had a bad experience with this and, you don't, and you've already kind of like turned off your mind, the scripture would tell you, no, don't hold prophecies in contempt, but test them and hold on to what's good in them and reject what's evil. You know, there's this idea, I think I've shared this before. Um, I remember John Piper sharing. He was giving an example of how people could treat prophecy with contempt because once after giving a sermon, someone came up to him and said, Pastor Piper, I hate to share this with you, but I feel I must. I, I got a word from the Lord that your wife's pregnancy is going to end in a miscarriage. And so, wow, he was 
done. And he went back home and he just began praying about it, kept praying about it. And as he did that, he didn't feel a peace from God that that's what was going to happen. Um, he didn't sense that, that the words of that person were God's words. Um, but it affected him. Uh, and I think it was five or six months later, his wife gave birth to a healthy baby boy that has had no problems. Could we understand how John Piper might treat prophecies with contempt when he next prophecy he heard? Yeah, they can do a lot of damage if they're not tested, if they're wrong. And so God gives the church this responsibility to test them and to reject what's wrong and to hold on to what's right. Wayne Grudem defines prophecy as reporting in one's own words what God has spontaneously brought to mind. Now, this is a very different idea of prophecy than we have in the Old Testament or with the apostles when they gave the very words of God that are printed in our Bible now. In the Old Testament, if a prophet spoke and what he said was wrong, he was to be stoned. But prophecy in the New Testament is different. And the New Testament says, you know, you've got to test it. And I think part of that is why is the, one of the reasons we don't have to worry about generally about prophecy becoming overtaking scripture in our lives because scripture it's God's word it's a hundred percent truth whereas every time you hear a prophecy you've got to discern and ask God is this of God or not it's got to be tested uh, but we were uh, commanded to do that but in the New Testament uh, it's reporting your own words what God spontaneously brought to mind for me there is an element these things were spontaneously brought to mind. It, it didn't just happen a minute ago. It happened, uh, I guess it would be seven years ago. Um, and, and it didn't all happen in an instant. I, I don't even, it's hard for me to explain how I came to some of these convictions, um, mostly through prayer and as I began writing about these things. And I didn't even understand why I got interested in that. Um, so there's still a lot of mystery in it for me. And also, uh, Wayne Grudem and Piper like to bring out that this is where error enters. Is one is when we're receiving from God whatever he's giving us, we can not receive it in the right way. We can mess up in receiving it. And then also we can have error in the way we report it. Um, and they, if you're interested in that more, you can... Uh, I'd encourage you to look at some of the resources they had. John Piper had a whole conference for pastors on the gift of prophecy, and they have some very helpful information there. Now, the heart of what I'm trying to communicate that I believe God has given to me is that a significant part, perhaps even the primary reason that God allowed 9-11 to happen was because America, and especially Christian Americans, had come to the point where we trusted more in our military and our economy for our security than in him. Another way to say this would be that God allowed ungodly, radical Muslim terrorists to crash planes into the two iconic places that are universally recognized symbols of our country's economy and military, being the World Trade Towers and the Pentagon, Pentagon on the day 9-11 that in America is immediately understood 
by all Americans as meaning emergency. God allowed this to happen in this way that we might repent of our sin of trusting more in our military and economy for our security than in him. And today I want to talk through and show um, some of these ideas, but this idea that he used these symbols, the World Trade Tower being a symbol of our country's uh, economy, Pentagon being the symbol of our country's military. Um, in fact, I can't think of either of them. What would be a better symbol to pick if you were to, to want to do that? Um, the World Trade Tower is the only could I, thing I could think would be perhaps if uh, they had destroyed the bull on Wall Street. That's the only symbol that I can think of that would compare, but the World Trade Towers universally and throughout the world is more representative of our global economic power and dominance. And then the Pentagon. I can't even think of another symbol that would come close. So as I, um, after I wrote my article, I had an opportunity to share it with a house church in China of other expatriates. And interestingly, when I, when I shared this message, there happened that day to be a Filipino woman there. And when I finished, I didn't, I just finished, and suddenly she spoke out and she said, yep, she said, you're, you're right. She said, your country did a lot of harm to my country. You didn't let our leaders really lead. You made them puppets. And so now our, my country is still struggling to have good leaders that can stand on their feet. That was very humbling to hear. But I also felt that it was God confirming that there is truth and that these were the words that he was saying. Now, there were many responses to 9-11. I wasn't here, but I know the churches were packed. And from the research I've done, it seems like pastors were helping Christians mourn this event as an undeserved tragic event in our nation, a reminder that we live in a fallen world. There was the mourning of the death of innocent people. In church, we reminded each other that God's still sovereign and in control in the midst of these tragedies. There were calls for justice and for people to pray for justice, and people were called to keep trusting God in this time of sadness and darkness. But as I researched it, there, there was one thing that was lacking in our response, and that was repentance. Uh, I, I could almost, except for one article I found by Chuck Colson, um, I didn't find anyone calling for repentance or saying that our country had done anything wrong or that before God we needed to change some things. Generally, there were uh, objections to this idea that uh, God would, was behind 9-11, that he allowed it, that he allowed radical Muslim terrorists to crash the planes into those buildings. The first one was, well, God would never use radical terrorists to discipline his people. That's the ridiculous idea. But, but if we, we know our Bible, which 
perhaps that's part of the problem is, is we don't read and take to heart all of the Bible. The book of Habakkuk is a stunning answer to this objection. In Habakkuk verse 5, uh, I want to read this, but I'm always reminded whenever I read this, some good friends of ours at our church, this was their theme verse for their wedding, and it was on their wedding program on the front page right in the middle. And it said, Look, Habakkuk 1.5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Okay? So this sense of excitement in their marriage that God is going to do something wonderful through them that people would be amazed about. Some in this translation says people will have wonder about it and be astounded because of how amazing it's going to be, because of this great thing God's going to do. The next verse says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth, seizing dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from, them, their, from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like eagles, swift to devour. They all come for violence. Habakkuk's this, that verse is, God's going to do something that's going to amaze people, and that is he's going to bring a godless nation to come and discipline them and destroy them. They were going to come, and already the Assyrians had come. Now the Babylonians were going to come and take over not just the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom as well, and they were going to conquer Israel. And yet, many Americans, we see that verse, and yeah, I've seen it used so many times, of a great, good thing God's going to do through our organization. This is our theme verse. People will be utterly amazed, but its context is, people would be stunned, and they would have this object, God, why would you send ungodly an ungodly nation to discipline us, to conquer our land, to bring harm upon us. But you can't ignore it. That's what God did. That's what his word records. Now, as always, whenever God brings judgment, he inevitably talks about the hope, that he's not given up on his people. And he gives that hope in Habakkuk as well. But the message is, that he gives his people is clear. There's going to be destruction, violence, evil that's going to happen to you, and it's going to come at the hands of this godless people that I'm allowing to come and do it. So that objection really holds no water. Another one is, well, but it's not like God to communicate his message symbolically. I think just very quickly we can deal with that. You know, we look at Abraham. His name was changed from Abram to Abraham, father of many nations. Moses, um, with the Passover, the powerful symbol of God's protection of them from the angel of death. Then later, Jesus is the Passover lamb. What a powerful symbol. Joseph has visions, the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowing down before him. The wheat sheaves bowing down before him. Joseph later interprets dreams that uh, astound Pharaoh and enable him to rise to power. 
symbols brought powerful messages. In Joshua, we see them piling up the rocks, forming what's called an Ebenezer. And they say, why are we doing this? It's, they said, so later when your children see those stones, they'll ask you and you'll tell them how God delivered you as you cross through the Jordan River. When Nathan the prophet rebuked David, he told this story of the, this one man who had very rich and their one little poor shepherd with one little lamb that was his pet lamb. And the rich man was having a dinner, didn't want to kill one of his sheep, so he took that poor man's only little lamb and killed it. And David was furious. He said, that is so wrong. That man should be punished four times. He should have to give back four times because of what he did was so evil. And Nathan said, David, you are that man. Powerful story, analogy, symbol. God is always, God's the master communicator. Jesus was the master communicator. He was always talking with symbols. In fact, he said, Jesus, there were some times when he only used parables. He didn't just talk like we're conversing now. Everything that he said was a parable on some occasions. And then just to skip down at the bottom, uh, the ongoing, um, well, even... I should mention Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. Isaiah, he was naked and barefoot for three years. God told him to go around naked and barefoot for three years as a symbol of the mourning about, about, regarding the judgment that was coming on them. Jesus is in his parables, his symbols. Then the two remaining ceremonies that God gave us to continue till he returns, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both of these very powerful symbols. So this idea that God wouldn't use symbols like the World Trade Tower, he wouldn't use a symbol like the Pentagon, that, oh, it's just coincidence that this event happened on September 11th, and it's just coincidence that 9-11 in our culture where these events happened, everybody recognizes that means emergency. God was saying, this is an emergency my children in America have become proud and arrogant, and they've put their trust in their military and in their economy, and they have forgotten me. And he's a jealous God. The Bible warned us about this through David. In First Chronicles 28, verses 2 to 3, King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. You're a warrior and you've shed blood, so you are not to build my house. Now we know David was a great man of God. He was called a man after God's own heart. But in this one thing we see, there's so many questions. People often say, well, that God of the Old Testament, he's so bloody and there's all these wars. And get this sense that God delighted somehow in the destruction of people. But if he could ever make it clearer, he said it here. No, you, you are disqualified from building my house. Though you're a man after my heart, you have shed blood. 
We also see it in the law. The Bible warns us there in Deuteronomy. God knew that one day they were going to enter the land. God didn't want them to ask for a king. He wanted to be their king, but he knew they'd ask for it anyway. So back in Deuteronomy, way beforehand, he tells them, okay, I'm going to allow you to have a king. But he said he wants to protect them. And he says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law. Why did God not want the, the king to acquire many horses and chariots, says other places, okay, or to acquire much gold? So he knew there, and wives. He knew that these many wives from other countries, foreign wives, would cause the king's heart to turn away from God and they'd follow their religion and follow their idols. He knew that the horses would cause them to put their faith in their own strength, in their military, in the number of horses that they had. And gold would cause them to become proud and think they wouldn't need to depend upon God because they were so rich. God warned America of this way back here in the law. In the first part of Solomon's life, he listened to God. But I just wonder, this last part, where he had supposed to hand copy the first five books of the Bible and, and then read it every day. My guess is, my bet is that at some point he stopped doing that. And he started buying horses. Said he, had to, he set up cities where they were chariot cities. He had so many horses and chariots, there were different cities that were locations for them. And he got gold. In the latter part of his life, he started doing the opposite of these things. In Second Chronicles, it says, The weight of the gold that Solomon received, Solomon received yearly, each year, was 666 talents. Interesting that that number is 666. Not including the revenues brought in by merchants and traders. 60, 666 talents is 25 tons of gold. Okay, he was not to acquire excessive gold. Would you say 25 tons, 50,000 pounds of gold a year is excessive? I would think so. He also had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in his chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. And his horses were imported from Egypt and from all other countries. The very thing God warned them of, Solomon did. And he went from being great like his father David and seeing God prosper them to being destroyed and having the kingdom ripped from him. As I looked at these things, God led me also to an article, and this may seem odd, um, 
but it was about President Eisenhower, who was the Supreme Allied Commander in World War II, uh, Supreme Allied Commander in Europe of World War II. Then he went on, uh, led the military effort in Korea, was then president of Columbia University, and then went on to serve two terms as president. And when he gave his farewell address in January of 1961, turns out it was two weeks before my birth, when he gave it, it's, they said he'd spent months knowing he knew that this was an important message, that he'd be remembered by it. And the two things he emphasized in his farewell address, he said, America must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. He further warned, only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of this huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. He said, be careful. He had seen it all. He'd seen World War II. He'd seen the Korean War, and he'd seen the military, and then the industry that goes with it, all these companies making money from the military, built, making the, the weapons, and the whole industry of, of that working together, and he saw the huge danger of it if it got out of hand, if, if knowledgeable citizens didn't take care that, that it wouldn't get out of control. And he said, if it does, then it's going to go against our peaceful methods and goals, and there won't be security. There won't be liberty. The second thing he warned about, interestingly enough, he said, as we peer into society's future, we, you and I and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience <coughs> the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without asking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. He warned them against debt, of spending money that, that they didn't have for the pleasures of that day or for their military, for whatever it was. He saw the potential for that. And so the two things he warned, don't let this military-industrial complex get out of hand and don't get into debt. It's going to ruin things for your grandchildren. Well, how did we do at heeding Eisenhower's warning? The United States has 4.4% of the world's population, but we spend 35% of all the world's military spending. We spend every year $597 billion of the $1.6 military spending in the world. When I wrote my article in 2009, the figure was 47%. Basically, America at that time was spending as much money on our military as the whole rest of the world. I don't, under, I don't know how this change has happened, but I just got these latest numbers. Uh, but that's three times more than China spends. Some say it's even six times more than China spends. Seven times more than Saudi Arabia. Nine times more than Russia, the next three countries in line. Did we heed his warning? 
about not allowing this military industrial complex to get out of hand, I, I look at these numbers and I think, I don't think we did. I don't think we citizens were knowledgeable nor alert, like he said. Well, have we trusted our economy for our security more than God? I just looked this up this morning, the little program, the National Debt Clock, $19.5 trillion, which is $163,000 for every taxpayer in America. I looked up and found that the, the average income for uh, taxpayers today is $54,000. So there's all these plans about how we can get rid of our debt, our national debt. It, it's easy. All we need to do is if every one of you will give all of your annual income for the next three years, every penny, no spending on food, no spending on gas, no spending on education, but all of your salary, just for the net, only for three years, give it to the country. And if everybody in our country will do that, then we can be out of debt in three years. Or we could do it like a, fam, a, a loan and spend $723 a month, which is 17%, 18%, so nearly 20% of our income for the next 360 months, for the next 30 years you can give 20% of your income to the government, and that way we can get rid of our national debt. Did we listen to Eisenhower? More importantly, did we listen to God? Have we begun putting our trust in our economy? Here's federal debt. I like this one because it shows it's by president. Everybody can share the blame. Everybody's been in, in, adding to our federal deficit. But in particular, look. If we look at 2001, when 9-11 happened right here, since then, that was, we're at about $6 trillion, and now we've gone to 19.7 since 9-11. So if we ask that question, did, if God was trying to say to us in 9-11, you're, you're putting your trust in your money and your economy, put it in me. And America responded by saying, okay, we'll triple our national debt. Personal savings. God says, you're putting your trust in your money. You're finding your satisfaction through your money and not in me. So what has happened here starting in 1970 all the way through 2012? Our savings have been less and less and less. We have a little uptick at the end starting in 2006. I don't understand. I don't, I'm not an economist. I can't tell you why. I hope that continues, that people will save more of their money. But even more telling than this, much more telling, I think, statistic, is to look at household debt based on dis disposable income. So of the money that we have free to spend, how are we spending it compared to going in debt? Wow. We're taking that money and we're buying things with money we don't have. We as individuals, it's easy to get upset at our country. And our politicians are always talking about reducing the debt, reducing the debt. I've not heard any of them ever say, you know, as individuals, we need to start taking responsibility 
and reduce our debt as individuals. But it has just continued to climb. And then again, in 2005, there's been this spike. I, I hope that that will continue, that we won't be a nation filled with that kind of debt. But it's especially telling, I mean, if we look at 2001 there when 9-11 happened, if God truly did allow 9-11 so that we would repent and turn back to him, boy, how must he feel about this? Our savings became less and less. Our debt became more and more. It's almost as if we are spitting in God's face. It, it is of great concern to me and should be to all of us. This may seem odd as well. Uh, God led me to an article uh, by Abraham Lincoln. Will you check in my bag to see if there's a couple of sheets there? And I was so stunned by this article. And it talked about when Abraham Lincoln, it was his second inaugural address. The, the North was winning the war, looked like they might be able to finish it out. He'd just been elected again. And, you know, they say he was a theist. He believed in God. He occasionally went to church. He thought a lot about God. And he prayed. It's unknown whether he really was a true Christian or not, but he sure thought a lot about God. And he posed this. Think of this. The President of the United States, he was pondering during his speech, why does this war keep going on? Why hasn't it stopped? And he said this. Perhaps... God wills that the war continues until all the wealth piled up by the slaves, 250 years of unrepaid work, shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the whip shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said today, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Can you imagine a politician saying this today about 9-11? implying that perhaps this has happened because of wrongs we've done in our country in the past, because of injustice. But that's exactly what Lincoln said. He said, perhaps it's because all the money we made from the slaves that they didn't get paid for and all the blood that was shed on these slaves, and now that blood is being shed by the North and South as they fight each other. Wow, amazing that he would have the courage to speak that out. When asked about it, he commented on his speech saying, I believe it is not immediately popular. Men are not flattered by being shown that there's a, been a difference of purpose between the Almighty and them. Seems like that's true today. Pointing out that God's purposes in 9-11 may have been different than ours. People don't seem too receptive to that idea. Then I very briefly want to look, uh, it seems to belabor the point, but I think it's worth doing, to quickly look at the military conflicts that we've been involved in. I, I'm starting with the Korean War. I believe World War II is probably one of the few examples where we see um, it was a horrible war with much death, but it defeated people that were trying to overthrow the world and were... Um, I would say it was a true victory at great, great cost. But since then, we look at the Korean War. Okay, our purpose here was to stop the spread of communism. After initial losses, the Allied forces came back and pushed back the Koreans to the 
I think the 51st parallel. But they were not able to meet their goal of unifying the north and south of Korea. And there were very high levels of civilian deaths. I found that there were uh, 1.1 to 1.5 million North Korean soldiers killed and 1.5 million North Korean civilians killed or wounded. Wow. As many civilians were killed as wounded as the soldiers that were killed. 800,000 Allied soldiers killed. 373,000 South Korean civilians killed. And it cost our government $341 billion in 2011 dollars. It wasn't considered a, a, a victory. There was never a peace treaty signed. There are still troops in South Korea, and these two countries are still technically in a state of war. Then the Vietnam War, from 1955 to 1975. So two decades, we were mired in an unpopular war, again with a very high proportion of civilian casualties. The initial idea was detente or lessening of tensions with North Vietnam, China, and the Soviet Union. But after two decades of costly warfare, we removed our troops in 1973 without a victory. And America, if there's one thing America hates, is to withdraw troops without and not being able to say we were victorious. I think that's in part why we were in Afghanistan for 14 plus years is we couldn't find a way to get our troops out and say that we had a victory. I believe that's a sign of pride that we, we must repent of. But Vietnam was considered a wake-up call for American foreign policy. We had to admit that the domino theory was wrong, that communism spreading to small countries didn't inevitably mean it was going to lead to its unstoppable spread. And listen to what we said. Americans vowed to never repeat the mistakes of Vietnam. That included fighting a war that wasn't our con- without our country being strongly behind it. We vowed to never fight a war against an enemy we didn't understand and who was able to choose the time and place of the battle. And we vowed never fight a war without a stable local government to work with. Look at Afghanistan. I don't think we learned our lesson. The cost of the war, $738 billion. 1.1 million North Vietnamese, Chinese, and Soviet soldiers killed. 300,000 Allied South Vietnamese soldiers killed. And 10,000 civilians killed by landmines after the end of the war. I'm sorry, I don't have the number of allied forces that died. The next event was the attempted Iranian hostage rescue. This is when Jimmy Carter was president. They'd spent 445 days in captivity. America sent their Delta forces to capture them, but the uh, transport plane and a helicopter crashed into each other, and five other helicopters had to be abandoned in the desert. They had to scrap the whole mission Four of the helicopters were recovered and are, were used by Iran after the fact. When it happened, America's felt, Americans felt a great deal of shame over the failure. It, I think, unfairly left a mark against Jimmy Carter, um, but it was a sad day for the American military. 
the invasion of Granada, of a small Caribbean island where there was a military coup uh, that the U.S. led an invasion of it to overthrow this new revolutionary government. Unfortunately, the United Nations and our closest ally, the United Kingdom, resoundly condemned this action as a flagrant violation of international law by a vote of 108 to 9. 19 U.S. soldiers were killed. 45 uh, Grenadian and Cuban soldiers were killed and 24 civilians. But our closest ally condemned us. Then the Beirut Peacekeeping Force in 1983. It was a noble mission of U.N. peacekeeping to grant security while the Lebanese Civil War was going on. But during it, a suicide bomber came and drove a dynamite into the Marine barracks, killing 241 Marines. And later, three seconds later, into the French barracks, killing 58 French soldiers. Political pressure made us, we ended up withdrawing our Marines within a few months. It was not, though it was a very noble mission, again, it was not considered a success. The invasion of Panama. Now, this seemed like a success. Here we had Manuel Noriega, who was known for his international drug trafficking. And so our mission was to oust him and to put in a new government. And they did it successfully. But within a few months, embarrassing revelations came out that in the 30 years prior to his capture, Noriega had been paid between $300,000 and $10 million by the CIA to help him become president. So we ended up ousting the very guy the CIA helped become president. The Senate Committee on Terrorism and international operations concluded the saga of General Noriega represents one of the most serious foreign policy failures of the United States. It provoked international outrage. The United Nations voted 75 to 20 that it was a flagrant violation of international law. Now, as this one, we have a video. I'd like to show this clip about the Persian War. I think it's... Uh, especially important. I think this played a big part in us having pride in our military. So as they play it, look for things that would have led to our pride. The first target was Iraq's capital. From the rooftops of Baghdad, 3,000 anti-aircraft guns fired into the night. American bombers. They were so sophisticated that the Saudis had nicknamed them ghosts. The F-117 stealth bomber was designed to be invisible to radar. But this was its first test in major combat. The stealth's first target was the main communications tower in Baghdad. At exactly 3 a.m., the pilot in the lead aircraft pushed the button and a 2,000-pound laser-guided bomb descended on its target. Across the city, the ground shook as 14 more bombs from other stealths hit their targets. The aircraft turned for home. The air campaign unleashed by the coalition against Saddam's Iraq, was codenamed Instant Thunder. It was the most powerful and focused use of air power in the 20th century. 
throughout that night and into the following day, American and coalition aircraft continued to attack Iraqi targets, including Saddam Hussein's palaces. After their experiences in Vietnam, American commanders knew that unfavorable coverage might damage public support for the war. So they carefully managed what was actually seen by the watching world. Splash. Good. That was an excellent splash. The American general who commands all the Allied forces in the Gulf has said that Operation Desert Storm has been going according to plan. The aim was to portray the war as clinical and bloodless, with so-called smart bombs making surgical strikes. Using laser-guided bombs, pilots attacked Iraqi vehicles along a stretch of this road leading north from Kuwait City. This created a roadblock and behind it Hundreds of vehicles became trapped in a giant traffic jam. This made them totally vulnerable to the American aircraft overhead. Some of them were so desperate to escape that they drove off across the desert. Every available American aircraft was ordered into the attack with devastating results. For mile after mile, charred vehicles and human corpses littered the desert and choked the two main roads going towards Iraq. An estimated 2,000 vehicles were destroyed. With the liberation of Kuwait, the main political goal of the war had been achieved. But the Republican Guard had not yet been destroyed. However, President Bush feared that continuing to bomb a retreating enemy might give the impression that America was behaving like a bully. And so, on February the 28th, 1991, Bush declared a ceasefire. I am pleased to announce that exactly 100 hours since ground operations commenced and six weeks since the start of Operation Desert Storm, all United States and coalition forces will suspend offensive combat operations. The Gulf War was over. In total, 248 coalition troops were killed, far less than anyone had dared hope. Nobody knows how many Iraqis died, though some estimates put the figure at over 30,000, including 3,000 civilians. Despite the pre-war fears of the coalition, it had turned out to be one of the most one-sided battles in modern history. Schwarzkopf and his men returned home to a hero's welcome. The Allies could have chased Saddam all the way to Baghdad, but they had no authority from the UN and no wish to become mired in Iraq. Instead, they hoped that Saddam would now be too weak to be a threat. 
But Saddam's regime did not crumble as the Americans hoped. He crushed two uprisings that followed the end of the war and remained in power for another 12 years. Several thousand US forces remained in Saudi Arabia to keep watch on Saddam's army. Osama bin Laden has claimed that it was this presence of US troops in the Muslim holy land of Saudi Arabia that motivated him to launch a series of attacks against American interests. This culminated in the events of September the 11th, 2001. Well, I'm not trying to give a course in military history, but I wanted us to see those images. I know those images were important for me, especially those crosshairs. I remember watching the news, and every night, they, that was the first time we'd ever seen that on TV, crosshairs showing these precision-guided missiles within one meter of their target blowing up. And I remember thinking, wow, that is amazing. That's incredible, the technology we have. And I remember feeling this certain kind of pride of like, wow, nobody better mess with our military. We're hot stuff. And I believe this is when America began to become proud and, and even arrogant. And Uncle Sam began to strut. And I appreciate Taco helping put together those slides that just capture that. And I think that that was a time when America really began to feel pride in our, in our military in a sense that, wow, nothing can stop us. And we began, we stopped leaning on God for our security, feeling like our military and our mighty dollar could provide it. And yet, here in, it was that unprecedented technology, unprecedented air power, they, it was called the 100-hour war. In 100 hours, the army swept across and defeated the Republican Guard. It, never before in modern history had there been a war like this. I remember in China, taxi drivers would say to me, America military, number one. You know, and then they would say, Americans, they love to fight, yes? So, but even in this great victory, what do we see? It, they liberated Kuwait, but Saddam wasn't taken. He put down uprisings. It was another 12 years before he was captured. Even when our military was at its finest, we see there were no great victories. But it's like what someone once said, you know, if your only weapon is a hammer, every problem you see becomes a nail. It seemed like America began doing that. And then this made it even more so. Then there was the Somalian conflict, but that you think, remember, Black Hawk Down. There was one American that was taken and dragged through the streets, and so America ended up pulling its forces out of Somalia, even though it was a noble U.S. peacekeeping mission. There was the war in Kosovo. Uh, where they did helped with the bombing, but they bombed the Chinese embassy, and that put a big uh, black mark on that uh, operation as well. Since 9-11, we've had the Iraq War, okay, the capture of Saddam Hussein, the killing of Osama bin Laden, the war in Afghanistan. Some of those may seem like victories, but in the again, our first response to 9-11 was to declare war on terrorism and to go to war. 
and to show the power of our military. In the Iraq war, you remember Bush landed uh, in flight gear, and they said on the deck of an um, aircraft carrier, and he pronounced, mission accomplished. And the war in Iraq is finished. It was another eight years, though, that the war went on before we were able to uh, take our troops out. Um, and the, the pretense of getting in the war was the, the weapons of mass destruction that were never found and that left many around the world and the United Nations included furious that the U.S. attacked. Saddam Hussein was finally captured. Osama bin Laden was killed, but even there, remember the, the stealth technology of one of the helicopters was left behind. Some said that Chinese scientists were even allowed to, to see it. Also that Pakistan was supposed to be our ally, but supposedly they had helped in hiding Osama bin Laden, though that was denied by them. But again, things that even that seemed like a great success were tarnished. And the war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history, we just never could find a way. We should have never gone in there. We never could find a way, in my opinion, never find a way to get our troops out and declare that we had won. And we were too proud to say we had made a mistake. So my point in all of this is just so God's trying to tell us we're too dependent on military, but what have we done? We just keep using it without, not without any success, but with tarnished success in every case and many times failures. It's like, are we going to get, get the idea or not? And so I believe that's what God is, is saying to us. That what he wants is us to personally... This is not a message I'm preaching to our nation's leaders, but to us, ordinary Christians, with hope that it can make a difference in our nation, but that we would personally repent of any attitudes or behavior showing that we do rely on our military or our economy more than God, and that we'll pray that our repentance will lead to national repentance, a national humbling of ourselves, to say, no, we, our security is only in God. Our money says, in God we trust, but it seems like God is saying to you, to you Americans, it's your money that you trust. It's your military that you trust. So I believe this is what God wants as our response. And I encourage you in the days to come to sit and wait on God and ask him, what ways have I had that attitude that my security, I can trust in the military, the U.S. military, it's so powerful, so technologically advanced in our our economy, that I can go into debt, our economy still will be good, our nation will still be good. What ways have you shown that your dependence has been too much in those and not upon God and thus have offended God? I said before that at the end, I would ask that you look at the Holy Spirit to speak to you about this. And I'd like to ask, does anyone sense the Holy Spirit in them affirming what has been shared today is from God? Or does anybody sense that the Holy Spirit in them is disturbed by what has been shared and you have a sense it's not from God? Well, I understand there may be questions. If you do either of these, I, I would love to hear with you. Um, this is the journey that God had put me on, and 
I just wanted to be faithful, to be a good steward of it, and, and to share that. And I pray that you would continue to, to pray about these things and to take them before God. And let's do that now. We don't just receive it individually, but corporately. So if you get in groups of three, no more than four, let's spend a few minutes uh, talking about one of these three questions. Let me pray to close. Father, I know this message can be misunderstood in many ways. Um, Lord, help us not to just hear this and leave, but to, to talk with you and ask you, what do you want us to do about this? And what are you saying to me? And Lord, I do ask that you would help Christians and our country to be humble and to return to you and to be able to demonstrate to you that, no, our trust is in you, Lord, and we will follow you. We will offer our lives to you for you to use however you please. In Jesus' name, amen.